everybody at all of our campuses today, meeting throughout the Twin Cities. Glad you could join us. Way to make it to church. I want to welcome those of you also watching online. We consider you to be a part of our congregation, so glad you could join us as well today. I especially want to welcome those of you who are students. Uh, it can be tough being a student. Uh, when I was a student, I, I never liked being a student, no matter how young or old I was. In fact, when I was in college, I was 900 miles away from my home. I was all alone, all on my own for money, work, transportation, housing. I was constantly stressed out and, uh, you know, poor as a college student. And even though there were always people around, I always felt lonely and afraid, or often felt lonely and afraid. And I had roommates who were very strange, just so strange. One of them rarely bathed and just reeked to high heaven. Another was a kleptomaniac and stole things from people. And then... You know, I had professors, um, some were great, but some who, who would assign four term papers and two major exams as if theirs was the only class for that semester. And every semester I, you know, began, I would feel so overwhelmed that I simply was not going to make it through. But I can tell you, if you keep your head down and if you can really trust that God is for you and God will help you, and if we as a church can encourage you as well, you'll make it through. I promise you will. But you don't have to be a student to feel a little disoriented. Maybe some of you are a new parent today, uh, and boy, that's, that's huge. Uh, maybe some of you are starting a new job or just moved to a new area, and it feels like you're just trying to get started. You know, maybe some of you are in a rut, and you feel like nothing ever changes. Whatever your situation is, I think September is really a great time to restart your life and make this a great year. Today's message is called Recalibrate Your Priorities, and I want to begin by asking all of you a question at all six campuses. Just think about this question. What would make this year the very best year of your life? If one thing would happen and, and that would, you know, make this a great year, what would that thing be that would make this year the very best year of your life? Last May, I decided to add a third car garage because for 24 years, We've banged our car doors next to each other. We've, I've crammed my canoe, kennels, decoys, mower, hunting and fishing stuff around the walls in this tiny garage, and I've just had it. So I told my wife, Lori, the thing that would make this year the very best year of my life would be a third-stall garage. I said it would change my life. It would fill me with joy and turn me into the husband that you've always wanted me to be. <laughs> so last May, we started this three-week project, and now it's September 13th. And we're still not done. It's not the builder's fault. It's that I miscalculated all the side jobs that come with a project like this. For example, when they dug the hole, they tore up my sprinkler system, cut the cable TV, and ripped out the electric dog fence, which took me and a friend two solid days to dig trenches in, in hard clay to repair. Two days. I spent a full day on a jackhammer that weighed more than me. I wasn't planning on this. Dave, the concrete guy, just handed it to me and then walked away to do so. I was just there to observe. But he handed me that jackhammer, spent the full day doing that. The landscaping started about a month ago when a dump truck backed up into my driveway and dumped 11 yards of dirt next to my garage. For the next three weeks after work, I hand-shoveled and hauled hundreds of wheelbarrow loads of dirt over the back hill and alongside the garage, telling you it tested our marriage big time. Then I spent two full days of my life borrowing trailers, picking up sod, laying sod, renting a 500-pound cement grinder, grinding the old floor, and then returning all those trailers. Then the electrical work, which, you know, 
sheetrocking, taping, painting, and patching the floor was all up to me and a few unfortunate friends who actually know how to do those things. <laughs> then our tree blew down in one of the storms this summer. The windows had to be replaced. And the trucks absolutely ruined our driveway, which tanked our budget and put me in a state of financial shock. Several people have asked me if it's worth it and if it's made me happy. <laughs> and the answer is not yet. I'm not happy yet. And you have to wonder, given my role as a pastor, is running a jackhammer really what I should be doing? You know, and will, it, will that contribute to the best year of my life? I've lived long enough to know that while having a new garage will be nice, a garage cannot make you happy. A garage cannot make you any happier than you are right now. The quality of your life will not go up because you have a third stall garage. So what is it? What is it? What would make this year the very best year of your life? Honestly, I think most people have no clue. Don't give it any thought. So they just add more and more activities and stuff to their already crowded lives without even thinking, is this going to contribute to the very best year? You know, maybe for you, it's if you graduate. And graduation would be a great thing for you, make it a great year for you. Some think if they get married, if they just get married, it'll be a great year. Have you seen married couples? I mean, half of them are just, man, ooh. Uh, and marriage is great if it's going well. Some think that if they have a baby, if they have a baby, it'll be a, a great year. And children are an amazing gift. But having a child is like a bombshell that disrupts your entire life for the next 18 years. I mean, having a baby, for some people, is the worst year, not their best year. For some, it might be a promotion and you think that would do it. Or if you lost 30 pounds or overcame an illness or an, an addiction of some sort. And those things would certainly contribute to a great year for you. But... As I thought about my own life with this question, and everybody's at a different place, different stages in life with this question, but for me, it's captured in a single verse. Ephesians 5, 2, look what it says. Live a life of love. I love this word, life. Live a lifetime. Not just once in a while, but let this be the marker. Live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself for us. A couple months ago, I read that verse in my morning devotions, and I immediately got out my journal, and I wrote these words down. Would people say that about me, that I live a life of love? They'd say I live a life of adventure, maybe, leading and teaching, maybe, but in the cracks of everyday life, do I really love? Do I care? Do I give, lift, and love others? The next phrase really defines what Paul means by love. He says, live a life of love as Christ loved us and gave himself up. Gave himself up for us. There it is. He gave himself up for us. Do I love people by giving myself up for them? Do I give up my schedule sometimes, my time, my comfort, my desire to be left alone and escape? Bob, live a life of love. For who? Give myself up for who? Well, Laurie, your wife first. Give yourself up for her. For my kids, my staff, my neighbors, and anybody else God puts in my path. Jesus, help me live a life of love. I wonder what my year would be like 
if my number one priority was to love others the way Christ did, to live a life of love every single day. I wonder what your year would be like if you did that. I think it would be the best year of your life. Because isn't it true, life really does come down to the relationships that we have in our lives. I don't know about you, but when my relationships are good, I can handle just about any challenge that comes my way. But when my relationships are bad, I'm not good for much of anything. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13.8, look at this verse, a real short verse. Love never, love never fails. Everything else fails. Stock markets fail. Government fails. Health systems certainly fail. Computers fail. I can't even get my weed whacker to work right half the time. Cars fail. Things fail all the time. But love, there's one thing that never, ever, ever fails, and that's love, the Bible says. Never fails. If I can do that this year, this will be my best year. But let me break this down for just, uh, in three ways, there's, there's three things, components of this, I think, especially for me as I think about it, and maybe for you. How do we do this? First way is this. I've got to raise my self-awareness. Raise my self-awareness about the things that I say and do that tend to hurt other people, but I'm not even aware of it. Am I aware of the things that offend others? I've got to raise my self-awareness. This past year, I went through another intensive evaluation of my, of my leadership to help me in this area, to become more self-aware and on the end, other end of this evaluation was 125 pages of feedback from my colleagues, 200 colleagues here at church. And I got to tell you, it was, it was painful, agonizing, humiliating in many ways. One of the questions on the survey is, what would your worst critics say about you? Isn't that an awful question? What would your worst critic say about you? One of our board members said, Bob, when one of the questions is, what would your worst critic say about you? It's never going to be good. And it wasn't. The four parts of the survey that they were looking at in my life were integrity, responsibility, forgiveness, and compassion. I basically failed in the areas of forgiveness and compassion in the eyes of my colleagues. And it was painful to hear that some people actually think I'm not very forgiving or compassionate. And when I heard the feedback, at first I just wanted to dismiss it. I wanted to excuse it. I told Fred, the consultant, it's been a hard year for me. The data is based on past history, and it's got to be skewed by a few people who just don't like me. I wanted to dismiss it. But then I read chapter 3 of his book, and it said things like this. Unaware leaders make excuses and try to dismiss the data. They try to rate themselves higher than they are, and I read that and I thought, uh-oh. So the next day I sent an email to Fred and I told him I was so sorry that I'm now ready to work on this in my life. And he wrote back and he said, oh, Bob, I'm so relieved for you. And it's been eight months of just digging around in my life, and it's hard. But one of the big learnings has been how a lack of compassion, a lack of forgiveness was modeled to me by my dad. My dad, I, I love him. He's gone now, but I just loved him. He was a great leader, faithful to my mom, family, and church. But he was pretty rigid in how he viewed 
the world, and he didn't have much patience for those who fell outside of his theological framework. Didn't have a lot of compassion for people who challenged his notions and, and his ideas of what morality and truth were about. So he wasn't very compassionate or forgiving of, of, of himself or of other people. Turns out, I picked that same thing up. I've struggled all life long with being hard on myself and being hard on other people. So, so for me, to live a life of love means to be much more forgiving of myself even. To be easier on myself when I fail. And then more forgiving of others. To let people fail and be okay with it. Not have a big old meltdown over that, but just say, you know, failure is a part of life. To be more patient with those who think differently than me. And I've got to tell you, there's been a genuine shift in my spirit. And it's so freeing to not have to be the judge and jury of everybody, to soften my spirit and just embrace God's forgiveness of me and God's forgiveness of others through me. Author Brent Hansen writes it this way. He says, you know, quit thinking it's up to you to police everybody. Quit trying to parent the whole world. Quit being shocked when people don't share your morality. Quit serving as judge and jury of everybody. It's all just so exhausting. Now, he's not saying we shouldn't care about morality and truth. Those of you who know me know I love truth. And I try to live by truth. But that we don't have to be so forceful with it. That we should lead with love and then bring truth in. But here's the deal. Here's the scary part. Because of sin, and we all have sin, I do, you do. Because of sin, we all have blind spots in our life that we're not aware of. We all have blind spots that tend to hurt other people and offend other people. And some of us have no clue what our blind spots are because we've never had them looked at by a professional counselor or a trusted friend. We've never had that opportunity like I just have come through. Unless we become aware of these blind spots, friends, we're going to keep saying and doing things that hurt people and ultimately hurt ourselves. One of the most courageous things you can do is ask a trusted counselor or friend, hey, would you be willing to tell me what my blind spot is? If you have a healthy marriage, one of the most courageous things you can do is, is go to your spouse and say, would you be willing to tell me just one, not ten, but just one thing that I do or say that maybe is off-putting to you, would you be willing to share it? If you're a parent and you have kids, they'll tell you. <laughs> Dad, you really want to know? Really? It's your anger. You cut me like a knife. It's your words. It's your, it's your addiction. It's your alcoholism. Whatever it might be, your kids will tell you what it is that is hurtful to them and ultimately hurtful to you. But I'm telling you, in order to live a life of love and have the best year of your life, you've got to become more self-aware, and so do I. Second thing is this. You've got to give some stuff up. Just do. This is so important. Paul says, live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up. Loving people means giving yourself up for them and giving up some of your time. 
Loving takes time. Loving someone takes time. Did you know that? It takes a phone call. It takes time. It takes a visit, a text, a note, an afternoon coffee. Relationships cannot be microwaved. People are never convenient. To live a life of love, you, you simply can't do everything that you want to do. You simply have to give some stuff, some stuff up. In his excellent book, it all goes back in the box, John Ortberg writes these words. He says, when Nancy and I got married, I asked her which household task she most disliked. Her response was immediate, cleaning the bathrooms, hate it. John said, well, I'll take that off your plate. You'll never have to worry about cleaning the bathrooms. And she hasn't, he says. In over 30 years of marriage, she's never cleaned the bathrooms. I haven't either. They're a mess. <laughs> but at least we have more time for each other. And his point is, in order for you to make this year your very best year, you have to decide what you're going to give up. you got to decide what you're not going to do, what's not going to get done. And that includes, by the way, giving up on getting so mad at the little annoying things that people do. Oh, that's annoying. Why do you do that? It's because people are annoying. That's why they do it. I sat around a table recently with several of our top leaders. We were talking about our own marriages and the annoying things in our marriage. And I said, what have you all given up on in your marriages to make it work? One person said, my husband leaves all the cupboard doors open. I'll walk into the kitchen and there will be six doors open. I've given up on that, she said. Another said, my wife leaves the cured coffee maker empty every time. She sees it's empty. She sees the lights are blinking, but she never fills it. I've just given up on that. My husband leaves all the lights on downstairs when he comes up to bed. I wake up at 2 a.m., and it's like sleeping on top of the sun. All the lights are illuminating the neighborhood. I've had to just give up on that. Another person said, balancing the checkbook. My wife just spends away. I've just given up on that. Actually, that's one you might not want to give up on, okay? <laughs> I said sewing. Sewing. My mom used to sew everything, buttons, you know, things that were ripped. My wife, Lori, never sews anything. I just had to give up on that. I used to get so upset. Why don't you sew things? Now I just get out the sewing box, put on, box, put on my little skirt, and do it myself. I do. <laughs> Finally, with a tone of defeat, our executive pastor is listening to this conversation. He says, I think I've given up on everything. Just defeated. What were they saying? That in order to live a life of love, you have to give up some annoying little things and let it go. I have a couple questions for you. Is there anything you need to give up on? even though it drives you crazy? What is it that drives you crazy about your spouse, friend, roommate, whatever it might be? What is it? Does it really matter? Is there anything you need to look past and let go so you can love better? Second question, is there anything you need to eliminate from your life? Eliminate it so that you can invest more time in those you love. It might be a membership that's just consuming all your time that should be going to people. 
It might be a boat. Boats are great, but I'll tell you what, they are time suckers. And money, just you can just hear it. Property. Maybe you need to eliminate a property. Maybe one of your five sports. Maybe even another relationship that takes you away from your most important relationships. A lot of us have these fringe relationships. And it's just sucking all the time and energy away from what you really should be paying attention to. I love what Gary Keller, co-founder of Keller Williams Realty, says, best-selling author. He says this, the secret of success, this is so key, is elimination. Not addition. Not adding more stuff. It's elimination. It's ignoring all the things you could do, and there's a thousand things you could do, and doing only what you should do. All successful people know this. Elimination. To live a life of love and make this year your very best year. I'm telling you, you've got to give something up. What is that for you? Finally today, fill your squares. If you're going to live a life of love, fill your squares. Wisely. For the past 24 years, I have kept my schedule on a calendar like this. You know, these old archaic paper, no machine, Tell you what, they fire right up. This thing just, no batteries, never crashes. <laughs> Everything's written right there. And I've kept, my, I've kept track of what I do every single day of my life for the past 24 years. I've written down in a little square. You know, 12 months a year, 365 squares a year are on, this, on these little calendars. And you can see everything I did, studying, writing, you know, counseling people, whatever it might be, hospital visits, everything I've done for the past. And here's, here's actually 15 of them. Past 15 years of my life, right here, every single square is accounted for. But I live one square at a time. And so do you. Today is a single square. Some of the activities in our squares we have no control over, sleeping. All of us have to sleep eight or nine hours a day, every square. Time in the car, commuting, running kids around, we all have to do that. Some of us, mowing the grass takes my wife at least a half a square a week. To get that done. <laughs> Fixing things. We have to fix things, clean things. If you're a student, you got to study. you got to spend at least a few hours every, every, every square, you know, studying, eating. These are square fillers that we have little control over. We all have to do them. A wise Dutchman, Louis Smeads, wrote over 50 books on the Christian life, and he wrote these words a couple decades ago. Listen to them. He says, each square represents one episode of my life. I will fill the squares with classes I teach, meetings, lunches, hundreds of cups of coffee, some praying and gestures of help to my neighbors. As I get older, my squares seem to get smaller. And one day, I'll walk into a square that has no door. One of those squares will be terminal. I do not know which square it will be. A couple of years ago when he was 81, Louis Smeads was up on a ladder putting Christmas lights on his house and he fell. And he hit his head. And he died. The final square came for Dr. Smeads that day. Before he died, he wrote these words. He says, there are only two options about the final square. One is that it turns out to be a coffin where for a billion years from now, everything will still be dark and you'll be gone forever. For eternity. 
The other option is when we walk into that final square, it isn't a square at all, but it turns out to be a door, and our real life just begins. He says the Bible says that the last square is an opening into a new world where God will set everything right and where those who loved Jesus and loved others will live forever in heaven. And as I read those words, the question I have is, in the meantime, how are you all and how am I filling our squares? In the cracks of everyday life, are you living a life of love? Is loving God and loving other people a part of every single square? I spent about 10 of my squares this summer on a garage. 10 on a garage, and that's fine. But if that's all I fill my squares with, I can't live a life of love, and I won't have the best year of my life. So three weeks ago, my wife and I took off for Missouri to visit my daughter, son-in-law, and granddaughter. And the Wednesday morning we took off from White Bear, I thought to myself, what am I doing? Wasting my squares like this. I should be painting my garage. I should be, you know, writing a message or shooting my bow or shooting something. I had a long list of square fillers that I could have been doing. I shouldn't have been going down to Missouri just to visit the kids. What's wrong with me? But then I thought, this is exactly what I should be doing. And we had a great four days. We hiked, we golfed, we bounced around to the bay before the best squares of my life, really. On our way home, we, we drove past an absolutely terrible car accident in southern Minnesota. One of those where you just know it was really bad. We arrived home that evening, and I got a text that simply said, Rich Stensland was killed in a car accident in southern Minnesota today. Cindy was involved, but she's okay. I was stunned. Rich and Cindy Stensland and their five kids have been in our church for as long as I can remember. Rich was 58, my age. He just retired from Honeywell. Just retired. One of the most gentle, humble, godly men you'll ever meet in your life. Every time I saw Rich in one of our lobbies, he'd shake my hand, he'd smile, we'd exchange a few words. I never had to worry about the Stenslands. He and his family lived for 24 years on Black Duck Drive in Lionel Lakes, and three weeks ago, just like that, it was Rich's final square. He was in the back seat with his 85-year-old mother, who also died two days later. Friends, I can tell you that there's no regrets. Rich filled his squares well. He went to work. He mowed the grass. He remodeled the house. But mainly, he lived a life of love for his wife, Cindy, his five kids, his grandkids, for Jesus Christ, and pretty much everybody he met. A couple days before the funeral, I went over to their home and just to be with the family a little bit. And when you walk into their home, every room has this feel of family. And there's family portraits and there's smiles and there's these little nooks and crannies throughout their home where they sit and shared family time together. And I thought to myself, this is what it's all about. This is what a family should be like. And I know a lot of us come from broken homes and broken families, but you can start where you are. We had Rich's funeral just 16 days ago. It was amazing. 
I cried, I laughed. I watched a family celebrate a man who got it right. Four of Rich's kids got up and said something about their dad, and I was so moved by what they said that I've asked one of them to come and close our service today. I've asked Britta if she would come and just share a little something about her dad, and then I'll come quickly and close after she's done. Would you help me welcome to the stage Britta Stensland? I'm Britta, and 29 days ago, my dad lived his final square. That day, I was with my husband, Joe, our son, my sisters, and nephews at a festival. We enjoyed the day um, watching a parade, playing in bouncy houses, eating fair food, and playing with animals in a petting zoo. As we were heading home, I got a call from my sister who asked if I was driving. When I said no, her voice cracked, and she said, I have bad news. Dad is dead. I don't really remember my reaction in the moment, but my husband, not knowing what had happened, instantly pulled over. I ran out of the car, collapsed to the ground, and just completely lost it. I knew that what she told me was true, but everything in me fought it. This was the sort of thing that happened to other people. I just couldn't believe it. My dad. My dad was an amazing dad. My siblings and I all looked up to him and loved him so much. Beyond being a father to the five of us, he became a father figure to so many other young adults who didn't have strong father figures themselves. My husband was just one of the many people that my dad took under his wing and treated like a son. My dad lived his life to the fullest, and he always gave us perspective. He was an engineer, so he was known for helping us with any problem by using charts and math to come up with the most logical solution. My dad isn't here anymore, and there's no equation or chart that can help us through this terrible loss. But the logical part of me, the part I get from my engineer dad, keeps reminding me that my dad is in heaven. And what he's experiencing in heaven is far greater than the retirement he was going to enjoy here on earth. My dad loved the Lord with all his heart, and he was an amazing leader for our family. We all miss him so much, it's hard to bear at times, but we will see him again. And that promise is what gives us the strength to get through this. I want to end with a story about my dad, one that makes me smile when I think of him. I hope it makes you smile too. One day when I was in middle school, I called my mom to come pick me up after school. She was busy in the kitchen, so she sent my dad. So I'm standing outside with all my cool friends, and I'm trying to be cool too, and all of a sudden my dad pulls up. But instead of pulling up in a car like a normal parent, (laughs) my dad pulls up on a tandem bike. He's wearing no shirt. My dad never wore a shirt. (laughs) He hated shirts. And he had on tight spandex biking shorts. (laughs) He had a helmet on, and he was waving an extra helmet for me, calling for me to hop on. I was completely mortified. There was no way I was going to admit that that crazy man was my dad. (laughs) 
My brother, who had come along on a separate bike, finally realized how embarrassed I was, and he managed to move my dad behind the buses so at least they'd be out of sight. <laughs> I refused to get on the bike with my dad and instead rode my brother's bike. I was fuming. I don't think I said a word to them the entire way home. Well, I can assure you that someday, when I've lived my final square, I'll be in heaven and you'll see me proudly riding around on a tandem bike with my goofy dad. Thank you. One of the reasons I asked Britta to come and share that with you, um, she's a person who's full of faith. I don't know how she even told this to you today, but her whole, her whole family is filled with faith and filled with Christ's love. And I'm telling you, it's because of a dad who lived a life of love just like Christ loved and gave himself up for others. So will you do that? What's it going to be? What will make this year the very best year of your life? Third car garage? Losing a few pounds? Winning the fantasy football league? Ooh. <laughs> NRS. That's fine. How about this? How about if we live a life of love every single day and fill our squares with that. Next week, uh, I'm bringing the message. What is it? Uh, revive my, no, renew my strength. That's what it is. It's going to be, a, I think it's going to be a great message. <laughs> I hope. Renew my strength. But I think, you know, I don't know. I just think a lot of people are tired and exhausted and what I call soul weary. So renew your strength next week. Let's all stand at all campuses and close for prayer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your gracious love for all of us. I thank you, God, for families like the Stenzelins who give us hope. I thank you for how you are even working through a tragic loss. God, there are many people standing here today who are facing similar uh, losses that just are unexplainable. But God, I pray that in the time you give us, I pray that we will fill every single square that we have with loving those that are around us. Forgive us when we fail at that. I just pray now, God, that you will dismiss us with your gracious, loving hand upon each person here. Meet us where we need you. Attend to our fears and anxieties and those the places where we hurt and feel alone and wounded. God, touch us by your spirit even as we leave this building. We need you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you need prayer, come on up. Thanks for coming out, everybody.